Hello and welcome to my first and most likely last attempt at a podcast with me, your host, Matthew Sweetman. Now, before we get started, I wanted to explain a little bit about myself and how this all got started. So, on a rather nice day, according to my sources, even though it was a scary Friday the 13th, my parents brought home a lovely tree-hugging hippie into this world. I was born in Racine, Wisconsin, although sometimes I don't consider myself a cheesehead because I've always been a Chicago sports fan, but whatever, I'll enrage people either way. I went to one school for all of my grade school experience, and in sixth grade, I had to choose a language to study. Now, they offered Spanish, obviously, French, which at the time, all the weird kids who at some point in their childhood had eaten a crepe took, and the biggest oddball of them all, which fit perfectly for me, was Chinese or Mandarin. So naturally, a few friends and I decided on that, and long story short, I did nothing in Chinese class for about six or seven years. And then my junior or sophomore year of high school, we had a Chinese lunch party. So our Lao Shir offered me to go pick up the food because I guess I was one of the most delinquent kids in the class. And as I approached the delivery man, he assumingly thought I knew Chinese because, again, it was for a Chinese high school class. And... To my surprise, I actually understood him and responded pretty instinctively. Afterwards, when I was walking back to the classroom, my mind was racing and I had no idea what to think because I had never really spoken with a local before except for my teacher. So things were never the same since. And fast forward five years, it really made a difference in my life. I've studied abroad and lived in Beijing for a year. I had an internship. I played on an international soccer team. Granted, it was comprised mostly of people from East Africa, so great, more French, but still, our main mode of communication was through Mandarin. And now, I'm about to graduate in the middle of a pandemic, um, and if it wasn't too obvious, my majors are environmental studies and Chinese, which now leads me to this podcast. Whew, I knew we would make it back eventually. Now, for the fun info. For my capstone project for my environmental studies major, after it was derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic, I was able to choose my own combination of things I wanted to do for my project. So I chose to combine my two interests of the environment and Chinese to try to map out people's perception of our current green energy and sustainable development markets. I tried to gauge as many different people as I could reach but with the time constraint and with the pandemic going on, everyone tended to not have a lot of time or have too many things to do that they didn't have enough time. Most of the people I interviewed were international students from the University of Minnesota. Others were other students and colleagues I had made acquaintance with in China, and some were even professionals in the field that I had met in China, as well as my old high school teachers. Now that we've gotten to the meat of the podcast, here's how I wanted to lay out the rest of the interview process that I did and how the rest of this is going to go. So first, because I didn't know anything myself before living in China, um, some important background information on non-governmental organizations or NGOs and how they formed and how they operate in China today. Next, discuss some environmental education issues within our world, the difference between some Chinese and uh, American schooling systems. Third, how growing up in a different religious background can affect one's opinion of the environment and how it can breed a different environmentally conscious person. 
Last, I want to show the benefits and maybe potential drawbacks to investing in green energy. Maybe what makes people weary or what makes people excited about it. Now, I first asked interviewees what their general perception was of the green energy market, as well as what the societal feeling is. They said anything from... Um, I think it depends on which age group you are from. Like hmm. For my age, or maybe a little older, like 30 to like this generation, we are more accepted like new uh, green energy and we know how important that protecting the environment for us. All the way to... Firstly, you know, Europe is doing great mm-hmm. and they are still you know, pushing forward with you know, uh, the green energy market and in terms of solar and uh, wind energy uh, resources. And China is the biggest maker regarding the solar panels and exporting and also in China they are also using a lot of uh, you know solar and other type of uh, green energy resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the problem right now is that between China and America is about the tariffs. The next question I asked everybody was regarding NGOs and their impact in China today. Let's see how it turned out. Based off of the work that NGOs do and how ENGOs or INGOs form in China, do you know of any that make a big enough impact on the policy or on the government to shift more towards environmentally safe practices? Uh, if there's any impact, I tell the truth. If I really pick a number percentage, I say five, ten percent because you know, keep in mind, China, the Chinese gov- government really, really suspicious about NGO mm-hmm. and their interference with the Chinese policy and their control. So if I really say it, and I maybe say 5 to 10% tops. Wow. I think organizations or NGOs have a big enough influence in the culture in China to actually make an impact on, the, on government policy? I wouldn't say so, dude. Yeah, I don't think so either, but... You know, because this is like communist, bro. It's communist. Doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. So it's it's gonna be the government influence the company, not the company like to influence the government. Mm-hmm. To be honest, yeah. The answers started out pretty bleak, so I decided to broaden my questions a little bit to see what I could come up with. You know of any organizations in China or NGOs that are doing a lot of work for green energy? Yeah, I know one. Um, Do you know the ant forest? I had never heard of the ant forest before this, so I was immediately intrigued. Oh, thank you. And basically, what it is, is... It's a program. It's a really big program. Last four years uh, on the Alibi, the Alibaba. Mm -hmm. Um, And they encourage people to use the, like, to use... Uh, how to say, like, to use the online thing, uh, in, like, to rent the mm, sharing bikes, uh, not to use cash, mm-hmm. and to take the public transportation, and things like that. So if you, oh, and also, you can, if you, uh, they encourage you to walk, all your steps will get into the, like, they will count the steps and transform into, like, energy for the trees. And if you like walk for how many steps and um, like all the the numbers you account, you you count and they will actually grow a real tree in the desert. After diving into some research about the ant forest program, 
I found out that she was exactly right. The Ant Forest program is the brainchild of Alibaba and the Ant Financial Services Group. This project emerged in August of 2016, and its purpose was to promote a low-carbon lifestyle. It tracks your general carbon footprint and rewards users for activities such as walking, traveling by public transit, making online appointments, as well as booking online tickets, that sort of thing. Basically, when users gain enough virtual green energy points, they grow a virtual tree in their app. And then a corresponding tree is planted in a rural area in China. It seems like a really nice reduce emissions with a subsidy kind of deal. And they have some pretty impressive numbers behind them as well. All the stats have halted since the COVID-19 outbreak and end in August of 2019. But until then, they have reportedly created around 400,000 job opportunities. For starters, in May of 2017, there were around 200 million users of the Ant Forest app. In August of 2019, there were around 500 million users. That's a little over 15% of the world's population. In August 2017, just a year after its beginning, the program helped reduce 1.22 million tons of carbon emissions, all recorded through the people's tasks in the app, as well as helped plant around 10.25 million trees. And by August of 2019, more than 100 million trees were planted and emissions reduced by almost 9 million tons. According to a former NASA scientist, Gong Zhang, you shouldn't really be able to see the trees from space because there is a setting in the app where you can see your tree that you're responsible for via satellite. And he was surprised by this because, again, it's a sapling. You shouldn't really be able to see it from space. But because the program has helped plant over 100 million trees to date, covering around 112,000 hectares in northwest China, users can see their specific tree through the app via a satellite that shows all the trees planted. The Alibaba Initiative has also received the UN Champions of the Earth Award, which is the UN's top environmental honor in September of 2019. Although Alibaba isn't a government organization, their title as a company is definitely not an NGO. So I wanted to explain a little bit more of the background of NGOs and how they work and why some of these answers may start to make a little more sense. China has the oldest and longest continuous recorded history of any country in the world, extended all the way back to around 4,000 years ago. Thankfully, we won't have to go back quite that far because for all economics or GDP purposes, China has really only existed since about 1978. <laughs> In 1978, the president at the time, Deng Xiaoping, initiated China's open-door policy. What this did was allowed foreign business to invest in China and helped create new relationships and basically began China's climb to where they're at now. The emergence of NGOs didn't come for about 15 years after China's opening, right before they were about to join the first Olympic Games in 1994. International and environmental NGOs, or INGOs and ENGOs for short, began to emerge soon after the games ended. The first ever ENGO in China was originally named the Academy for Green Culture, but was later changed to Friends of Nature, or FON for short. 
It was originally founded in 1996, and two additional ENGOs were created very soon after, these being Global Village of Beijing and Green Home. These three ENGOs have been staples in China ever since their creation. Now, the rules behind creating an NGO are relatively simple yet complex. For anyone who's been to China, I think you'll know what I mean. First, you have to prove just about everything possible about yourself, all the way down to your 7th grade math scores. But most importantly, you have to define your intentions as a company. Basically, sell your soul stating you won't go against the party, and you won't have any political upheaval or create any unrest in any sort of way. Lastly, you have to have a parent or sister organization sponsor you. Essentially, what this does is just reaffirming your organization's goals and purpose. This is where those three original ENGOs I mentioned earlier became so instrumental in this process. Because as more NGOs were created, the rules around creating new ones began to tighten. Now, the relationship between NGOs and the government works pretty well for the most part. Besides doing one of the obvious things, like I mentioned before, not doing anything against the party or stating your distaste for any policies, the central government and NGOs mostly get along. As the NGOs began to form, the policies that were enacted about 10 years prior really started to create a spot for the NGOs to fit into. Following the Great Leap Forward, which was, well, you can Google that, the Cultural Revolution and the new Open Door Policy, the 80s were a very confusing time in China. So from the government standpoint, it was very confusing who exactly was in charge of what. So for a quick example, China also has three branches of government. Absolutely nothing like the judicial, legislative, or executive branches in the U.S., but that's not important. What is important is that in the 80s, some of the Chinese judicial branch, per se, felt that they could take on their normal responsibilities, but felt that no one was monitoring, say, public health or pharmaceuticals, for example. So they kind of just started to adopt that responsibility. Then the legislative branch realized that they needed to pay more attention to the money and banks and businesses, so they started to take on that responsibility. Throughout the 1990s, people felt every key player was not included, the environment being one of them. When NGOs were created to fill some of these gaps that the government wasn't creating or wasn't managing, they were all for it. Because they weren't fulfilling whatever the people felt should be done, the general opinion wasn't, oh my god, I can't stand this government, what are they doing? But instead, it was more like, hey, do you think we should stop polluting? And the response was something like, oh yeah, that's not a bad idea, but we don't want to take responsibility for it, so you do it yourself. It started NGO and government relationships off on the right foot. So, to, so the central government was much more accepting of their terms and ideologies. Granted, it wasn't exactly as I just mapped out, but you get the point. Now that I had discovered the real power that NGOs hold in China, I found out that it wasn't as much as I had thought. So I wanted to shift my thinking to how does the society feel about it? Is there anything that the society does that 
could impact how the government responds or the policies that they enact? I had asked my interviewees if they noticed any difference in how the society acts in China versus in the U.S., thinking about environmentally safe and sustainable practices. One small thing I noticed here is that the plastic uh, limitation is started from this year, I think, mm -hmm. in your grocery shop that if you want to use the plastic bag, you need to pay for it. Mm -hmm. This policy in our country started, I think, from a middle school. I was going to say, I think in like 2010, maybe, very long time yeah, ago. It's very After I had started doing my own research on China's plastic bag policy, I found out that it had began just prior to the Olympic Games starting in 2008. Beijing basically wanted to just clean up the city, start reducing pollution, and reducing the bags and trash that was all over the place. So I began asking interviewees how the society felt about this sudden policy change. Here's what they had to say. So people, like, at, at first, people are not, like, accepting it. Like, why we're not now paying more things? It, it should be free, but... You know, it's policy. You can't. You, you only. You can only complain about it. So, right. after that, people were like uh, more paying more attention on like pr protecting the environment. From the central government, they just put a one directive out. Say, okay, starting tomorrow, everyone either you bring your bag to the grocery store while you go shopping, or you have to purchase. Mm -hmm. What was that? Right when that happened, what was the feeling? Was it like? Why would we do this? Why would I have to pay for this? Were people like upset about it? Uh, I think that people took it very well. Although on a global scale, it may seem that we're not doing a lot in the face of environmental degradation. However, because China started enacting some of these policies 10, 15 years ago, it has already started to breed a new generation of environmentally conscious humans. Maybe these kids will start to think, why do we have a plastic bag tax? Or maybe we can use a different material that isn't environmentally harmful. All of these sort of things start to stir in the society's mind when policies like these become enacted. Even though they might not be the biggest thing in the world, they still change people's perspective and mindset. So I wanted to ask my interviewees what they thought of policy change in the U.S. might look like. You said it seemed like people accepted it pretty well do you think it would go over the same in the, in the u.s or do you think people would come at it a little harsher uh i don't think it would be coming coming out of harsher uh just of the first few times will be convenient versus inconvenience hmm. i think people always like, get hard to accept new things no matter what like they just want to stay in the very comfortable zone and if you want to introduce some new things, we just feel uncomfortable and like unsafe about it. Mm -hmm. That's why I think what you said that Chinese policy, they adopted the plastic bag things and other things like so long ago that now it kind of seems normal. So people are okay with it. Yeah, but, but at first my parents like complain about it because like mm -hmm. it's new. Like why? Why I have to pay for this? Right. But after that, like people, okay, it's... <laughs> with this new wave of normal that has flooded over china underneath the covid pandemic news they actually announced in january of this year that they're tightening the plastic bag restrictions even more 
This time, they're tightening the restrictions on the production, sale, and use of single-use plastics. The National Development and Reform Commission and the Ministry of Ecology and Environment issued a new policy beginning in January that states all plastic bags will be banned in all major cities by the end of 2020 and in all cities and towns by the end of 2022. Plastic utensils and bags for carrot food will begin being phased out in 2020. After discussing a little bit more about how the society had changed from these certain policy changes, I was really curious about China's environmental education. Now, knowing that there's no official environmental education in the schooling system, I was wondering what these interviewees felt the importance of environmental education was. I think so, because we don't have like environment subject in high school. Right. It's, yeah. Um... Yeah, we don't have it. It's like I learned it like in on the internet, like mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, but our teachers, well, like uh, mentioned, we should protect the environment. But it's just like saying words, because you know, in the high school, the students mostly focus on to you know facing the Gaokao. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, so that's I think like the education should pay more attention about it like on it maybe having more you know events in Mm. schools Mm -hmm. like teaching people how to you know separate the trash in different catalog category although i didn't realize it at the time and definitely took it for granted the u.s schooling system has so many environmental factors built in such as field day do you remember field day when you were in middle school or even primary school, elementary school, when you would go outside and run around and do nothing and play games, that was still outdoor education. Those types of things just don't happen in China. So it's really important to see that when... Starting at a young age definitely can change your perspective. Definitely. No, because sometimes like we are very stubborn about stuff. It was like, oh, it's never going to change me. It's never going to change me. But, you know... If you're going to start learning something at the beginning, it's already in your bones, already in your root. You know what I mean? So after living in the U.S., or since you moved here, I guess, do you think that people are more, I guess, socially wise, that people talk about it more? They're more aware of the environment being bad, that more people want to change it? Does it seem like that is a bigger thing here or in China? Uh, I think that there's a more awareness of talking more about education, lecturing here in America, and uh, you know through the curriculum we teach and that t- uh, do more mm-hmm. and at least talk more. I'm not sure doing more or not. Yeah. And uh, but in China, both the talk the talk and the walk the walk. I think more and more people are taking this issue seriously um, mm. from our daily life and. We try to use the public um, transportation as much as mm-hmm. possible. And um, instead of using single use um, package, we started to use our um, own bag. Now, this might be slightly arrogant to say that China both walks the walk and talks the talk, but he's not that far off because. China has implemented a lot of environmental protection policies 10 to 15 years ago, which now are starting to seem normal. 
even though a lot of these policies may start with something very small and seemingly insignificant, it can really make a big change looking into the future, 10, maybe 15 years. One of the interviewees actually hit it right on the head. I want to say that I think Chinese people have that intention to do some small moves to like push the green energy more into the life, but it's not like the whole country knows that it's just started from the small steps. That's how I feel in China. But here, I think you have many. Mm. So what's the problem? Why does bringing up the U.S. and environmental issues in the same sentence make everybody just, uh, well, part of the reason is probably because the U.S. are more aware of, you know, the green energy and saving the world rather than the Chinese awareness. However, we do less versus, you know, Chinese people, they do more, even though they may not be uh, as much aware like we do here. Whereas in China... Way back about, uh, maybe by now it's about 7 to 10, 15 years ago, and uh, people were encouraged to buy uh, electrical cars and, mm. and uh, to buy new windows with, uh, you know, higher standards, and uh, buy doors with higher standards, buy furnace with higher standards. Then there is a tax incentive, but not anymore. Shifting gears just slightly, as we transition into discussing how the society can view some of these changes as normal or how to not make the society so upset about changing, the first thing that came to my head was something you learn inherently as a kid. The first thing that came to my head was religion. If you grew up in a very religious household and that household also tells you that you must protect the environment you must recycle and make sure to do all of these things from when you were two years old, that'll stick with you your whole life. I asked my interviewees if they thought religion and the environment were related. Here's what they said. I do not know, Matthew. It's a good question. Never thought about that. No, I never made a connection between environmental issue and with, you know, the religion. No. Mm -hmm. But when I when I was visiting yeah. a bunch of monasteries and um, places, all the monks were saying that it it could because you know you live a simpler life, you have to eat vegan. So just having all those different components makes you think, oh, you know, I shouldn't eat meat because blah 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 blah, the pollution, et cetera, et cetera. You know uh, I mean? No, I don't buy their opinion. No, I don't buy their idea. No, really, the reason because no. They, you know, they are vegans, they are vegetarians, they, you know, uh, live the simple life yeah. because that's the requirement of the religion. Right, but that's what I mean. So it, because of that, I think they felt it helped them either connect with nature more or have a, a more of an awareness for how bad we are messing up nature. So then because of that, it, it made them be more environmentally conscious. Funny enough, absolutely zero people that I interviewed had said that they grew up in a very religious context. So this discussion quickly started to turn less on the religion and more so on early childhood education, sort of like what we were talking about before. 
Now, as you remember, there's no standard environmental education curriculum in place in China. So how do we combat something like this? If people get educated at a very young age about like how they should take care of the environment, they definitely will when they grow up because they know the importance because the mindset is already in their head. It's just like religion. While conducting these interviews, the answers and the discussions that I've had have led me down tons of different research topic paths, investigating different policies, different initiatives, different organizations in China and the US. And I really wish I could round up all the things that I researched. But to keep the podcast down to a relatively simple size, um, I wanted to just add the most important and uh, key factors that I feel many people didn't know or many people may have misconceptions about in China and the differences between China and the US. One thing that doesn't vary between countries is the global renewable energy market. So I just wanted to offer a few brief pros and cons to investing in green energy. First off, renewable energy is stable and has a relatively low cost of operation. Again, it is a renewable energy source, so it produces a very small amount of or absolutely no carbon emissions, which is much better than our traditional fossil fuels. The last pro is that as this industry grows, there is an ever-growing market for more job opportunities. Some disadvantages in the renewable energy market is that most of this technology is still rather new. So the sticker price can be rather high, which can drive a lot of people away. Another con is that most renewable energy depends on the weather conditions to be most effective. For example, solar or wind energy, which are the two most common forms of renewable energy, depend very sufficiently on the amount of wind and sunlight that are generated. Protecting the environment, environment is very, it's a very uncertain stuff. The last disadvantage to investing in green energy is that it requires a lot of land space to either install solar panels or wind turbines, which is also not very effective or applicable for a lot of people. Although it takes more than just words to help cure the environmental issues in our world, I asked my interviewees if they had any last words of encouragement or positive thoughts to end the interview with. I just hope, um, as like as a human, <laughs> I just hope um, everything will be better in the protecting environment. Mm -hmm. like, like once you feel the sense that it's our responsibility to protect the world, um, that all this policy maybe will be conducted very more easily, I suppose, because. Mm -hmm. Protecting the environment is not just about green energy. It's also come from small habit, like living habits in your daily life. So that's where the parents' education is very important. Well, there you have it. All we need in this world is influential and effective education systems, government policy that reflect the importance of environmental degradation and injustice, and for all citizens of the earth, to understand their role and develop sustainable living habits. Not too hard, right? 
A reformed prison industrial complex would be nice. Oh, and an all-inclusive healthcare system. Seems like most people agree, so it shouldn't be too hard, though. Thanks for listening, and again, stay six feet away from me.